there's no way no chance every single weekend when I compete that I'm going to feel great all the time. So I've got to have a better way to deal with that. And there's no way I'm going to dominate my opponent every single week. So I've got to have a better way to deal with that. Welcome to Sweat the Technique, a podcast all about how do we get better, faster. I'm Ravi Gupta, co-host of this podcast. And today, me and my colleague, Doug Lamov, or should I say Doug Lamov and I, uh, interviewed Dan Abrahams, who's a sports psychologist who's currently working with Feyenoord Football Club. I'm not a Premier League guy, so I probably said that wrong. Aston Martin Formula One, Tundra Esports, as well as a number of world-class competitors across a range of sports. He's a best-selling author of four separate best-selling books on sports psychology, including Soccer Tough, Soccer Tough 2, Soccer Brain, and Golf Tough. He has an incredible framework for how to coach coaches and athletes through the experience of competitive sports from the U.S. to Europe and beyond. This is a timely episode for us because Ted Lasso is dropping. And in many ways, Dan is almost living the actual Ted Lasso show as his life. Like he's out there helping people think through thorny issues, you know, on the pitch, in the locker room, in the film room. And in our conversation with him, Doug and I kind of dissect like, what does it mean to perform not just in sports, but in any high pressure situation? How do you help people who are in a rut? Like either they had a really tough loss or on the flip side, maybe they've had a string of victories and you don't want them to be overconfident. And so we talk about that and so much more. Let's dive right into this podcast. Well, Dan, welcome to the podcast. I am honored to be here, Ravi. Thanks very much for inviting me. Well, let's get right to it. You are an expert in a field that I have been hearing more and more about with each passing day. You are a sports psychologist. Just tell us about what that job entails and how you even got into this in the first place. Oh, that's a big first question. Okay, I'll start with the latter question first. Um, I got into this because I was a failed professional golfer. I'll put it another way. I was a professional golfer who didn't win any money whatsoever, largely because of what was going on between my two ears. I didn't know how to concentrate effectively. I didn't know how to build my confidence when it dropped. I didn't know how to manage my self-belief through tough times. I didn't know how to practice effectively, as bizarre as perhaps that sounds. And I really fell in love with the psychology of sport as I was practicing and playing as a teenager. And I was reading books on how to improve my golf, reading those psychology books. And when I finished playing pro golf, I qualified as a, as, as a golf coach. And really, my love of human psychology accelerated as I was coaching because, you know, you're dealing with so many different people. As a golf coach, you're coaching 40 hours a week and you're, and you're dealing with different people from different cross sections of life. So I was like, I really love this. So uh, as I was coaching, I went to university and I, I did a degree in psychology, a master's in sports psychology. And about 17 years ago, I became a fully qualified and registered sports psychologist here in the UK. And I've been doing that ever since. Now, in terms of what we do, wow. I mean, it's broad because our number one, our, our sort of prime textbook, Ravi, is about 40, uh, no, actually it's about 62 chapters in depth. So it's a big, big discipline, bigger than most people think. 
working from sort of individual performance through to mental health and well-being, teamwork, leadership, relationship, behavior, emotion, personality, and how that impacts participation in sport. Hey, broad areas of participation in sport, coaching psychology, environments, setting up psychologically informed environments, mental skills, psychological preparation to compete. And I haven't even scratched the surface, I don't think yet. And some of us work in the organizational side of things, behind the scenes in some of the biggest clubs uh, and teams on the planet. So yeah, look, in simple terms, we work on an individual, a team, and an organization level. And we're really working across three areas. At the surface level is performance. So can we improve your performance? And I suppose that takes into account engagement and learning factors as well. Underneath that, underneath the surface area is probably the well-being piece, helping sports competitors and participants manage their day-to-day uh, thoughts and feelings and emotions because we're all human beings and those go up and down every single day. And then a level under that would be the mental health piece, which for me as a sports psychologist, there's uh, a lot about psychopathology I can't get involved with because it's above my competence level and I pass on to a clinical psychologist. But we always have an eye on player, person, mental health. So I hope that gives you a bit of a, a snapshot of the kind of things that we do. Yeah. And just a quick follow up on that before I kick it back to Doug is like, just give us a, a sense of just some, or if you could say who some of those clients are, whether from the organizational side to the team side to individual level, because you also do soccer slash football. And I think soccer and golf are your two main focuses right now, right? Well, they have probably been for 17 years because I, 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 you know, being a former pro golfer, I know golf like the back of my hand. So it seems natural for me to specialize in that. And I also, uh, growing up a Spurs supporter, Tottenham Hotspur back in the 80s and 90s, which were particularly painful periods being a Spurs supporter. I was always a big armchair supporter and I wanted to really specialize in another sport. So football was the one I really heavily got involved with. Um, um, just under a dec- uh, two decades ago. But look, as a sports psychologist, you work across all sports. So I- I've been lead psychologist for England golf. I've been lead psychologist for England rugby going into the last World Cup. I've worked with tennis players on the ATP tours. I've worked on both sides of the Atlantic on the golf tours. Um, I've worked, well, hey, look, I've worked with boxers, UFC fighters. I've worked with Olympians across a range of Olympic sports. So you don't really ever completely specialize in one thing. But golf and football would be I suppose my main knowledge area. Um, I've worked with half a dozen Premier League clubs over the years, uh, lower league clubs here um, in England. I've worked with uh, sporting teams, especially soccer football teams uh, around the world. In America, um, I have an online academy that actually supported 25 college programs from Division 1 through to Division 3 in their soccer uh, programs this past fall. So I'm a busy boy, basically. And uh, I put myself out there and get around and all that jazz. So so, so yeah, I've, I've, I've clocked up a bit of experience over the years. Dan, you and I go way back and I'm a devoted follower of your podcast, The Sports Psych Show. But I have to say, this is the first time that you've revealed that you're a Spurs fan. And that is a little bit of a, that's a shock. It's a shocking <laughs> yeah, no, revelation. 
your face, Doug, when he said that. I don't know anything about uh, about that world, but something tells me that was revealing in a way. I was trying to manage my tell on that. But actually, it's, it's interesting. I wanted to ask you a more personal question to start off, which is, do you still golf? And if so, do you golf differently now, either when you practice or when you play as a result of how does knowing what you know about psychology now change you on the golf course? Yeah. And, and I'll just firstly speak to the, the Spurs scenario there, Doug, because I, I <laughs> the, would say that... You mean, by that, do you mean the shocking revelation? <laughs> the shocking revelation. The people I support most now are the ones who pay my bills for me. So the ones who, who help <laughs> me pay my bills, I should say. So <laughs> the golf. Okay. I'll answer this in respect to the fact that I no longer play golf. And I probably need to see a sports psychologist about that, a good sports psychologist. I don't know if you know anybody. No. It, it's a time-consuming game, and I'm so, so super busy, and that sounds like an excuse. I, I do also think, and I'm half-joking about seeing a sports psych, it would be good probably for me to sit down with one of my very, very skilled colleagues who could talk to me a little bit, because we can't always sort ourselves out, can we? We're very good at helping other people, but not necessarily ourselves. And so I'd probably like to talk about being able to enjoy the game. Again, I wasn't a particularly good golfer. However, I was certainly better than I would be now if I got the clubs back out and started practicing again. So there's that admission. However, the way I'll answer that, Doug, is there would definitely be a shift in how I would approach my golf. I would really put the mental side of the game up in lights. And golf is heavily regarded as, as a sport that's very psychological, largely because of its pace, the time you've got to think, it's difficulty, the individual nature of it, the fact that the ball is stationary and you tend to hit the big ball, as in earth, before you hit the small ball, right? That's what I tended to do. So to be quite honest with you, and I hope this doesn't come across as egotistical because it's not meant to be, but really using the techniques I've devised over the years, working with a lot of players, whether it was at England golf or on the US tour, or the European tour, now the world tour, because I know how important it is. I, I practiced a lot. I would hit golf balls eight hours a day. In fact, I probably over-practiced. And what I know about effective practice now, probably in multiple domains, I would try to utilize now. Um, I would practice less, but I would practice with greater quality. And then I would very much have the philosophy on the course of, I need to make sure my mindset is right so if I'm on my C game, as I would describe it, when I was in, involved in England golf, I realized pretty quickly that the best players in our country here in our little island, the ones who were trying to go on and dominate world golf, tended to have a very good relationship with their A game. So if they turned up on the day and were what we say in golf, ripping it and everything was brilliant, they by and large, by and large, were fine mentally turn up and they're not quite timing it. They're not quite hitting the sweet spot. The ball is landing in a rough, perhaps sometimes landing in the trees. I realized they had a pretty poor relationship with their C game, that they had to learn how to manage themselves, take control of themselves, take charge of themselves through that C game in order to have their best possible score and their best possible outcome. And so that was very much me. I needed to I needed to learn how to do that better. So I would do that. So I would use essentially use all of my techniques on myself in order to have more fun and to win more money. Those are the two key elements, right? Dan, it reminds me of something they, they say about American quarterbacks and, and American football is that the best quarterbacks sometimes have the shortest memories. 
like, you know, throwing an interception and then just like getting right up and forgetting that you ever did it. Do you, do you have that experience in working with some athletes, like that the ones who can just shrug it off? Yeah, I, I, I'd, I'd almost um, redial that slightly and say, I think some of the best sports people have some of the most flexible memories, for sure. I personally think if we're, if we're talking about excellence, if we're going to use that term, then I do think that a, a short-term look at what hasn't been going so well, what needs to go better, there's nothing wrong with checking in with yourself and your game in that manner. If not daily, then every other day or at the very least weekly. But I completely agree that uh, we want players to also build the capacity to flex away from such unhelpful or what could add up to be unhelpful memories. Um, if they're not acted upon pragmatically and quickly, unhelpful memories that then damage confidence and play on your feelings, how you feel about yourself, your efficacy, if you like. And so I want players to be able to shift on to thinking about themselves at their best, picturing their best games, remembering their strengths, knowing what they're good at, reflecting on resources, what what they have in place in order to prepare effectively uh, and efficaciously for the next game. So I, I, I think flexible thinking, a flexible memory is a really, really powerful weapon to have as a sports professional and probably any sports participant who takes their games seriously. Just a quick follow-up question, which is you and I have spoken a lot about self-talk and the idea, one of the ideas that you talk about in your book, which is you call it a match script, but maybe I'll just give a little tiny bit of background for listeners, which is it turns out that self-talk is universal. Everybody talks to themselves, which is something you, you might not know intuitively that people, we're always talking to ourselves. And there's sort of spontaneous self-talk, which is self-talk that emerges almost without your control. You start talking to yourself to process experiences. And then there's deliberate self-talk, which are like the things that you say to yourself to manage your attention and your emotions during competition or in other settings, including practice. And you, in one of your podcasts, you just describe having the power of having a manageable narrative that envelops the actions and responsibilities that you want to take as an athlete. And you suggest to athletes that they prepare this sort of match script of phrases that they'll say to themselves in advance to focus their attention on, on the actions and responsibilities they want to take. I'm wondering if you could just riff a little bit on self-talk and match scripts and how they're useful and, and how they affect athletes. Yeah, sure. And in and, and you mentioned a really important word there, spontaneous, spontaneous self-talk. And I, I almost scaffolded a little bit more for my audience by saying, by actually, rather than talking about different categories of self-talk, although I often do go into a little bit of that, I actually say to my clients, look, there's a difference between your self-talk and your thinking. And I suppose academic sports psychologists, you know, the very great, uh, there's a fantastic Spanish sports psychologist called Alex Latinjack, who spends most of his life researching self-talk, will be uh, throwing um, his phone out the window as I'm saying this, because he'll be rather peeved at me for, for describing it this way, because it's academically perhaps not 100% accurate. But I have found what I'm about to say very useful for people to really envisage and think about self-talk in this way. There's a difference between your self-talk and your thinking. There's a difference between your self-talk and your thinking. And that's that your thoughts happen to you, whereas you do your self-talk. I'll say that again because it's really important to grasp. Your thoughts happen to you. They pop 
into your conscious awareness, if you like. Uh, they happen to you ways you do your self-talk. You can use your self-talk instrumentally. So that spontaneous self-talk is essentially your, in my world, it's your thoughts. So when I sit down with a player, I'll say, hey, your thoughts happen to you. They are automatic. And that's where I talk. I'm going to actually bring in another technique here, Doug, just as I'm, just as we'll, I'll come on to match script in a second. I call those thoughts that happen to you, those spontaneous thoughts, those automatic thoughts, I call them ants, automatic negative thoughts. Those are the thoughts that tend to be unhelpful that we're experiencing in any performance moment. You know, and that can be in sports and it can be in every performance moment in our life. Ants. A for automatic, N for negative, T for thoughts, right? And when I'm talking about ants, automatic negative thoughts, I'm talking about thoughts in a global sense in terms of feelings and emotions as well. Automatic negative thoughts, feelings, and emotions. You know, so think about that quarterback who's lined up and receives the ball and runs back and goes to throw and can't see anybody around to throw to, suddenly might have an ant, you know, and in very simple and polite language is probably that ant is around, oh, wow, I can't see anybody. I'm in trouble here. You know, that player here is, and I don't know the positions very well in NFL. I should know them much better. I don't know the language, but that player is coming at me very quickly and I need to get rid of this ball very quickly. And soccer players, you know, soccer players have this all the time. I can't believe we've gone a goal down. I'm playing awful to that. I feel flat and lethargic. So many players over the last 17 years have said to me, Dan, when I've been warming up, I felt really flat and lethargic and I, I just wasn't there at all today. They were having ants. In fact, I think they were having, having an infestation of ants, automatic negative thoughts. They were having an ant farm, right? Now, in my world, I think players need to build a capacity to squash ants. Okay, We're never going to completely get rid of ants because that's what it is to be a human being. Human beings experience ants, automatic negative thoughts, feelings, and emotions, and that's okay. But we can skillfully learn to squash them as in turn down the volume, turn down the volume of our ants. That's an important skill to develop, that flexibility. How do we do that? Well, there's a raft of tools we can use. For me, we need to use our self-talk, our goal-directed self-talk. And that goal-directed self-talk, well, it needs to be directed at something. Well, let's have some cues and some triggers, some things, some task-relevant, sounding like a real psychologist there, some task-relevant things to focus on, to come back to if we need to, to be able to squash our ants, to turn down the volume of ants. And so what better than to have those task-relevant things? Well, okay, well, what's task-relevant? Make these cues and triggers, these verbal self-talk cues and triggers as specific as possible, as controllable as possible, and positive. Not as positive as possible, but positive. Let me go through that as specific as possible. I want to score, if we're talking about soccer football here, is certainly positive, right? It's not particularly controllable because I can't guarantee that I can do that. I can't completely control that. And it's not very specific. I know I want to score, but what's going to help me to score? A real skill in this piece is to drill down, drill down, drill down, drill down to the specifics. What's going to help me to score? Well, I need to find space. What's going to help me to find space? Good scanning. Good scanning, constantly scanning, constantly scan to find space, constantly scan to find space. There's a specific, very specific, constantly scan to find space. Controllable, 
I can pretty much control that, right? I can choose to do that. So it's controllable tick, constantly scan to find space. And then positive is focused on what I want, as in approach behavior, rather than what I don't want, which would be described as avoidant behavior. See, there's so many, many mental things, psychological aspects to this technique. Specific, controllable, positive. So I've got one play in my match script, constantly scan to find space, specific, controllable, positive. I take that out onto the field with me, out onto the pitch with me, and it's a cue that I can say to myself when I need to refocus, when I need to pay attention to the present moment where my feet are standing right now. That is task specific to what I'm doing. I can tell myself, I can talk to myself. And if I'm having that infestation of ants, it's not happening today. I haven't scored. It's the 80th minute. Oh no, I'm not going to score. I won't be in the team next week. No, come on, stop. Keep, keep, keep scanning for space. Constantly scan, constantly scan. When the ball comes up to me, be ready to make that break. Constantly scan. It gives me a language on the pitch in order to keep me engaged in the game. It gives me a language in game in order to pay attention, to retain the right intensity, to retain a positive intent rather than an inhibition, rather than being distracted, rather than being too high or too low in intensity. The kind of invisible inner markers that fans and sometimes even coaches don't necessarily perceive. So that's essentially a match script and ants. Doug, one, one thing that makes me think about, Doug, in your work, it seems like it rhymes with some of the techniques that you teach teachers and you know, by extension, we teach children when I, th I think of what to do directions and positive framing is kind of what he talked about. Because what is what to do directions specific, concrete and observable, right? Is like when we're talking about giving directions to teachers. And then we talk about positive framing, right? I heard you, Dan, say you want to frame things into the in the positive, like what is the behavior you want to see? And and the, the added layer that you have is the controllable, right? Like, I would almost say like, what to do directions are almost like the shadow of the behavior you want of the kids. And you'd add controllable, obviously, right? Which is something we always talk about. You don't, you famously, Doug, you open some of these trainings saying, don't just tell a kid to pay attention, right? Because I don't, they don't necessarily know what they're controlling. It's not specific and concrete enough or observable enough, right? It's interesting. One, maybe one connection and one slight difference, which is, I think that one of the key things to effective directions in the classroom is preparation. And one of the questions I want to ask you, Dan, is, if I have a match script and have productive things to say to myself, are you also saying that I need to practice using them in my training sessions for them to come out effectively in the game? Because I think one of the things that we socialize teachers to do is actually script your directions. When they're important, script them in advance so that they come out fluidly so that you know what they are so you can use them without a high load on your own working memory. I think the thing that maybe one of the differences, but interestingly, I talked to my staff about this after a conversation with, with Dan about, about match scripts was whether they might also be useful for teachers to manage the emotions of the classroom, which is, you know, like, don't give attention to negative behavior or something like that when a student when a student is behaving poorly or something like that. Maybe the difference between what to do directions in this this case is that it's more about it's more particularly about processing the emotionally challenging parts of the of the game. I, I love everything you're saying there. And I think it sounds to me like it's directly transferable to the classroom. I mean historically I've done a little bit of work in the classroom, but not a lot. But I'm delighted that you're utilizing that technique in that work or you've at least had some conversations with teachers about this and to come back to your very first question Doug absolutely I mean it's it, I think implicit to session activities 
in any sport, whether it's football, soccer, basketball, baseball, you know, football is in the American version of football. Implicit to any activity is the notion that you're you're training mentally. Okay, it, it it's implicitly built in. Biopsychosocial is always happening. Biology is beating away under the surface, and psychology is as well. And our nervous systems are tethered to our environment. So, to biopsychosocial for short, psychology is always happening. It's there. My argument has always been, well, we can harness our coaching and teaching abilities to do that or those components more on purpose or instrumentally. We can be more deliberate with our mental training, if you like. And so any technique that I've striven to create based on evidence-grounded research literature is based on, you know, can we, can we use this on the training ground? on the practice ground to practice this. So as you quite, and you brought that great term in, Doug, that important term that we spoke about on my podcast, that working memory, that there's not enough space on game day. If you've got three plays in your script, those are things that you can come back to on game day. Absolutely. But you really want to ingrain these, automate these as much as possible. I don't think there's anything wrong with suggesting that a player has a bit of paper, if you like, with some doodles on it with relation to that match script on game day. And, you know, that hour before kickoff, what are they doing? They're having a look at it. They're picturing it so it can drive that visualization. You know, you're using a breakdown working memory. They're using their phonological loop, if I can pronounce that correctly, and their visuospatial sketch pad, which is the cognitive side of the working memory. So they're they're picturing it and they're saying it to themselves. And, And that is great preparation because players have lots of actions and tasks to perform on game day. But what are the top three? And that might be where that match script lies. So they're saying it to themselves, they're picturing it, they're thinking about it. But if they've spent the whole week preparing for the game by rehearsing their script in training, and again, they'll be practicing and rehearsing every component of their game, every part of their game, every action, every task. However, if they're really really highlighting those three things, there's more of a chance for those things to pop into their mind if they are experiencing ants. There's more chance for them to spot, stop, and squash the ants if they have it on game day. If a striker hasn't scored after 80 minutes and they're like, now having these ants and it's like, no, come on, stop, get back to my plays and my script. But that really is predicated on how seriously they take those plays in the script throughout the week. Are they rehearsing them daily so they're in long-term memory and building sort of complex schemas around those things? Maybe one other connection to the classroom, Ravi, is when we talk about the power of systems and routines, which are really you know, like carefully constructed habits in the classroom, which are you know the most powerful way to shape culture. We often tell teachers... The cue, the language you use to start the routine, to initiate the routine with the class, that's part of the that's part of the procedure. It's part of the routine. It's part of the habit. And I think you're kind of saying the same thing, which is, you know, we talked offline about this because my daughter is a footballer, a soccer player, and she's she's playing in college this year. And her coach has asked her to shift position. She's spent her whole life playing a deep lying number six position where off the ball, you know, the psychology is about careful positioning and not getting beat. And her coach has asked her to play it up top, which in addition to some sort of technical and tactical changes is a psychological change as well. So when you press off the ball, you have to be much more aggressive and almost take on a risk profile of like, I have to be willing to get beat 
is less cost to getting beat and more benefit. And so my, my, in order for her to change and be more aggressive pressing off the ball in the match, what you're really saying is that she would have to put together a phrase to herself, almost reckless, very aggressive off the ball, something like that, and practice using that to initiate the, the habit that she wants for herself, the behaviors that she wants for her. She'd almost have to build that language into the habit, say that to herself in practice, to cue herself to do it, and then it would be more productive in the match. Is that kind of what you're saying? Absolutely. I mean, not only can the match script be utilized as attentional cues to, let's say, remind oneself of the most important actions to display on the field of play. Not only can they be used as a self-regulation to be able to squash ants and come back to focusing on the tasks at hand, it can also be utilized for coaching points. Um, I always say match script can comprise of uh, performance actions, responsibilities in roles, strengths to magnify, and coaching points to improve upon. So with your daughter, Doug, I would say it's absolutely a coaching point. It could be, for instance, nonstop aggression, nonstop aggression which sounds quite a vociferous thing to say, and maybe it's not 100% accurate, but there's nothing wrong with a bit of hyperbole when you're trying to change behavior. You know, she's thinking nonstop aggression, nonstop aggression. I can, I love words. I love adjectives like aggressive because, you know, they change nouns, don't they? And, and that changes behavior, that informs behavior, I should say. So what do I want to be, do as a striker? You know, I want to be upfront now. I want to be constantly scanning. I I want to be looking for space. I want to be getting on the end of crosses. I want to be getting into the into the six yard area. I I want to be carrying the ball and getting shots away. And and if you think about all of those things, if we attach that adjective aggressive to it, I want to be aggressive with everything that I do up front there. Aggressive runs, aggressive movement, aggressively finding space, aggressively attacking the six yard area, you know, even aggressively defending from the front or even aggressively linking up with midfield. That kind of, those kind of action-based words excite me. And it's a tool I utilize a lot in my work with players, because as I say, it informs nouns, it changes nouns, it informs behavior. And I think that that's really impactful when we're thinking of behavior change, because that's all it is, is behavior change. Improving is sport is behavior change. How do we change behavior? Do you do that with coaches? At all? I guess I'm thinking about, you know, I'm a coach, I'm standing on the sideline and I'm doing two things at once. One is I'm processing my own intense emotions, but I'm also trying to direct player attention. You know, I just think this is one of the biggest challenges for match day coaching for coaches, which is how do I manage my words so that they are productive to my players? And one of the challenges there is I'm also verbalizing my emotions. And I'm just wondering if you've ever worked with coaches on the psychology of sideline behavior. And also, I'm just sort of wondering about this idea of a match script for a coach to be thinking about, like, here are the things I want to talk about. Here are the things I want to say. Here are the things I want to manage about what I say and do under challenging emotional circumstances on the sideline. Yeah. And again, where I've tried to devise techniques over years and bring them into layman's terms. Because in many respects, a match script is achievement goal theory, which 40 years of good research from Carol Dweck, the late great John Nichols, and other incredible psychologists researching in the area predominantly of education. When we're thinking of action-based words, and I am going to come on to your coach question, but when we're thinking of action-based words, I actually have a technique I call a game face, which is really what I was talking about. I'm going to be aggressive and upbeat. I'm going to be strong and dominant. And actually, this almost falls under the rubric of game face. And, and game face really stems from a range of psychological theories, uh, such as individual zone of optimal functioning, 
and you can hear it. It's, it's a mouthful. Players just aren't going to resonate with that. So it's like, it's not individual zone of optimal functioning. It's a game face. And the reason I'm answering that is because all these things are linked. I can execute my script in the style of my game face, you know. And really, if we're talking about coaches, all of this is applicable to coaching. And I'm guessing that's synonymous with teaching. It's applicable to teaching. So it's applicable to coaching. And I don't call, I don't have a game face for coaches. I, I call it a coach head. I call it coach head. So get your coach head on. Get your coach head on. And again, I would lean towards, first and foremost, I would lean towards action-based words. Again, adjectives in order, I would, I, and I've done it plenty of times with coaches, is displayed a bunch of adjectives, cool, calm, relaxed, focused, energetic, and so on and so forth, and try to get them to pick three to five words. So there's a focus on who we want to be. That coach head is kind of who we want to be. It's our coach persona. There's a focus, but there's also a breadth as well of behaviors. Because I can be a situation might require me to be cool and calm one minute and another minute a little bit more energetic, one minute focused. And I don't know, another, uh, another minute upbeat, you know. So, so I, I think three to five words or adjectives are really powerful. And then just breaking that down, you know, Doug and Ravi, just breaking that down to, well, what does that look like? What do you, what do you, you know, if you've picked focused, cool, relaxed, upbeat, energetic, well, tell me about energetic. What does that look like? What are players experiencing from you there? How are you going about your business? When is it useful to be... Now, let's come back to what you were asking about communication. When is it useful for you to be energetic? In what situations might you put your energetic coach head on? In what situation might you put your focused coach head on? If you've got that word focused in there amongst the words, in what situation might you put calm, your calm coach head on? Because obviously, there can't just be one word because there are many different situations. But if we don't have a template, in my humble belief, I think if we don't have some structures and some frameworks in place, then it becomes a free-for-all. But if a coach has these three to five words that can create a coach head, and that coach head is quite broad, and we can deepen it in terms of all the behaviors related to those words, then we have a template there. Then we have a template. And that's wonderful, not only for a coach to look at and think about for an upcoming coaching session and or for an upcoming game, but it's also wonderful for a coach to reflect on his or her or their coach head and the words and the behaviors that they've engaged in. How did I do today with these? Did I come out of these at all? Did I have a whole bunch of ants, automatic negative thoughts, come way out my coach head? And what damage has that done? So I didn't get my coaching point across. I didn't capture attention. I didn't keep things lean and lucid. And so working memory got filled and probably the things flew out of players' minds. So we can bring that working memory model into this idea of coach head as well. You know, so so that those would be the kind of little things I might do with coaches. It's absolutely translatable to coaches, uh, and and then of course you can have a a coach script as well. You can have a social script for social situations. You know, you can have a social head 
for social situations. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big introvert, believe it or not, and get pretty exhausted pretty quick with social situations. I have to work extraordinarily hard in some situations. So I try to put my social head on. Sometimes I fail uh, and I need to leave the room and go and have a lie down. But that's okay. That's what it is to be a human being, right? But that's, I think these little mental skills are so important and complement, whether it's teaching skills or complement knowing about a game or you know, whatever it might be. They're so important. Uh, one question I've had is you talked at the beginning about a couple of different domains of sports psychology and two stood out. One is this sense of player well-being. You know, how do you ensure that athletes are thriving psychologically in this very public, intense, unforgiving environments? And then another area that we've talked a lot about is player performance. Like how do they use their minds to perform better? Do you ever find that these can be in conflict and if so, could you share an example or two of, of when you found these two areas in conflict and what you do about that? Yeah, well, I, I, this is a really interesting conversation because it's it's an area that I think we're getting better and better in sports psychology now. And this, this is a this is a big topic of conversation on my own podcast, The Sports Psych Show. How do we help athletes perform and thrive? And for instance, in Olympic sports in Great Britain, they created a new mantra for Tokyo because it wasn't just that there's all kinds of mantras across Olympic associations, like own the podium and things like that. And they created a quite a, a, a one medals and more medals and more, which I think people were somewhat aghast about because it's, well, what does more mean? Let's be, let's be a bit more obvious about that. But the, the more is very much it's, can we perform and thrive? Can we perform and flourish? And so I think that to me, a lot of voices are talking about the importance of having processes within practices, coaching practices and coaching environments where that upskills players and coaches around well-being. You know, we might look at the field of positive psychology for that. And we might talk as about something like gratitude, for instance, you know, being grateful for you know, what we've experienced during the day, three, you know, you can diarize at night, three things that have gone well today. And, and, and that stuff is awesome. And it's fantastic. And I use it sometimes. And I think we should all use that. And that's really, really important. Maybe where I perhaps, I don't think I set myself apart from my contemporaries, but I'm a little bit more vociferous in saying that I do think that we need to continue to help participants and competitors build a more sophisticated relationship with competition. And when we do that, then that positively impacts player well-being. And again, we can come back to language here. And again, we can come back to goal orientations. What are competitors striving to achieve when they go and play in competition okay what are the spurs players striving to do on saturday when they go and play arsenal as an example or manchester united or manchester city the popular narrative we're socialized into this narrative around gotta win gotta win gotta win gotta perform gotta perform gotta perform and those words got to must win perform 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 immediately can lie counter to players' capacity to perform and thrive, to perform and flourish. The obvious narrative is, well, but they've got to think that way because they're, if we're talking about the professional level, they're professionals or the serious amateur or serious level of competition, but they're serious about it. They've got to got to 
perform. They've got to got to win. But when we have that kind of language, that extreme language, and when our narrative Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, going into the weekend game is solid, got to win, got to win, got to win, got to perform, got to perform, got to perform. Then we evoke, again, lots of ants. We evoke anxiety and worry and doubt, a drop in confidence. We increase the likelihood of frustration and anger and all the kind of emotions that we're inevitably going to experience anyway in high-performance sports, no matter our mindset, but we really turn up the volume of them. And so I find that a big part of my job is changing that narrative, for example, to best possible performances. When you, when you sit down with some of the best footballers, soccer players, and that by that some of the best athletes in the world and ask them what they're trying to achieve. They'll say, well, I want to win and I want to perform really well. They rarely have anything more nuanced than that. And so I want them to start building. Look, I know I want to win, but I can't control that. So I work in servitude to that. What have I got to do to do that? I know I want to high perform, but you know what? Let's broaden that. I want to have my best possible performance. How can I have my best possible performance? I'm going to have great processes, a great mindset. And so what you're striving to do is help players build those frameworks that we've talked about already with match script and game faces and squashing ants and things like that to focus on the controllables and so on and so forth. Now, when they're there, when they're focusing on the controllables, when they're in process, when they've got game faces, when they've got match script and they're there and they're saying, I'm going to focus here and I'm going to execute that and I'm going to be tough on myself there because there's more leeway there. I can control those things more. I'm going to be more tolerant on myself on performance. I know I'm not going to get everything right out there. I know I'm going to get beaten occasionally in my duels, in my 1v1s. We might lose the game. That is a possibility. It's okay to think like that. It really is. Provided you're coming back to what do I want to, you know, what what are the things I can control that I can achieve? And I'm answering your question like this, and I suppose it's a long-winded way to answer it because it is complex. You've got to help athletes have that kind of language, in my opinion, because then they flex more, especially post-game. Then their whole identity isn't wrapped around got to win, got to win, got to win, got to perform, got to perform, got to perform. Their whole identity isn't wrapped around if they perform poorly, they can't live with themselves because of that. If they lose and they're on a losing team, it's a disaster and they experience low mood for the next 24, 48 hours. And nobody wants to lose at the professional level. And so some negative mood is likely to ensue if you do lose. That's okay. I'm not suggesting for one second we start getting the party poppers out if we lose. But what I am saying is we need to flex quicker. And we flex quicker by having a more sophisticated relationship with outcome and performance, having a more dynamic framework around mindset and process. When you get athletes there, they're much quicker. Not only are they more flexible on the pitch to deal with adversity, but then they're much quicker to come out of any low mood if they do lose. They're much more robust in their analysis of their game. I had my best possible performance there. That's all I could have asked for myself. That's all I could have done. So what I'm saying here is thriving and flourishing and well-being really do start, especially at the very highest level, the elite level, with your relationship with outcome and performance. Now, when you add a whole dollop, a whole container full of great strategies and techniques that areas like 
positive psychology delivered to us and I'm going to be engaged in gratitude every day and I'm going to reflect on my strengths every day and I'm going to imagine dream games every day. I'm going to engage in good visualization daily. I'm going to have somebody there who might, I might be able to talk through some of my life challenges with. I'm going to broaden my identity by having other things to focus on. My family, my, I might have a mini business that I can focus on. I might do extra studies. Again, I'm talking about the highest level here. Then when you add all that in, then that's a very powerful place to be for your well-being. But I do believe that we can't just add these extra things in, that we've got to help those. That becomes a Band-Aid. Those become a Band-Aid, in my opinion, too much so a Band-Aid, if every single day players are engaged in a narrative, got to win, got to win, got to win, got to perform, got to perform, got to perform. We need to get to the heart of a sophisticated relationship with performance. Understand that as a human being, I've got 400 bones in my body. My nervous system is exceptionally complex. There's no way, no chance every single weekend when I compete that I'm going to feel great all the time. So I've got to have a better way to deal with that. And there's no way I'm going to dominate my opponent every single week. So I've got to have a better way to deal with that. Then our well-being, then we really can thrive and flourish in my opinion, then the rest of the stuff really works. That's really fascinating. One of the things I find myself thinking about as you're saying that, Dan, is that coaches are really in part psychologists. They're sports psychologists also, or at least the best ones. I assume they, they all are, some of them more intentionally, some of them better than others. Just thinking about this fascinating story about Jesse Marsh, who's the manager of uh, Leeds, maybe the highest profile American soccer football coach. He brought a player over from the US to play in Europe, which is a big step up. And he really struggled at first. And um, Jesse Marsh said to him, wouldn't it be disappointing if you came over here and it was this giant step up to Europe and it wasn't more challenging and it didn't push you to your limits and you didn't struggle at first because you weren't growing, which I thought was like a fascinating and very astute thing for a coach to say to a player. I'm just wondering if you could maybe close us out by talking about if I'm a coach at the elite level, at the youth level, what are the two or three most powerful traits if you think about a coach as a psychologist? What are the things you'd most like to see in those, those people? I'll answer that firstly by saying I completely agree. And as sports psychologists, our culture is to firstly say we work predominantly with and through coaches. I think coaches, because they've got their boots on, and I don't think there's anything wrong with me having my boots on, on the grass, but my cleats on. You can say boots with us. <laughs> <laughs> because they got their boots, stroke cleats on, they're in a wonderful position to influence player psychology. So every word matters. And I, and I think that that's where I would start. It's not a trait, but it's a philosophy. And it's to recognize everything through the prism of biopsychosocial, that we're biological creatures, that the person in front of you is biologically driven, psychologically driven, and socially driven. It's a complex mix of the three, which sounds scary. The behaviors you see are a complex mix of biology, psychology, and a player's social environment and socio-cultural experiences. And I would urge, number one, I would urge every coach, in my opinion, to have that lens of their coaching world. Because I think when you do, you become more tolerant, firstly. Um, you become more curious and open and more patient around change, more tolerant, more curious, more open, more patient around change. So have a biopsychosocial lens, understand that we're a web of all three. And then I, I think that leads probably to my second point. And it, again, it's, it's probably not a, a trait, although these philosophies 
beliefs, rules for life, if you, if you like, of course, impact our traits. I think the second thing would be linked is a neat follow-on, which is behaviours are shiftable. And too often, especially in the world of soccer football, but I think it can be endemic in sport, probably less in the world of golf, where we're used to players in their 60s playing seniors tours, changing their golf swing and suddenly winning a big tournament. That seems to be quite culturally specific, but too endemic the language, especially in soccer football is, wow, he's in his mid-20s now, he's never going to change, which is just a bizarre thing to say, especially given a lot of soccer football coaches love golf, for example, and would go along for a golf lesson at the, in their 40s and 50s. And what are they doing? Behavior change. So if you can see the world through the prism of biopsychosocial, be more tolerant, curious, open, and patient. Lead that patience to my second point here, which is behavior can change. Now, that doesn't, what I'm not saying here is that everybody can become Lionel Messi. That's not what I'm saying. Or Alex Morgan. That's not what I'm saying. And there's always debate as to how much shift one can get. But in my own consultancy practice at the moment, I'm having a lot of interesting conversations with coaches and striving to chip away at perhaps that fixed mindset around, well, that's the way this player is. And more towards, well, what can we do in order to shift behavior? And then exploring the many, many tools that are out there in order to engage players in behavior change. So number one, have a biopsychosocial lens to be more tolerant, curious, open, and patient and use that to understand number two, that we can change behaviors. We really, really can. And I think it's our responsibility as coaches, as challenging as it is, to change behavior. We have a responsibility. I think we have a contractual obligation to strive to do that. And I think that I think that's important. I think that's important. I, th- I think a third would just be to to be curious about the mental side of things. To, to, that's right. The third would be to understand, to get to understand the internal driving the external. As much as the external just being there, it's get to understand that biopsycho element and not just the social, not just the behavior, but understand the internal driving the external. Become a student of that. Sit down with a bit of paper, write biopsychosocial at the top and start writing what you know and spend, worst way, 10 minutes every week building that bit of paper into two bits, into three bits, into five, into 10, and build your manifesto, your biopsychosocial manifesto, if you like, your charter. If you can do that, you'll become a much better coach than you ever believe possible. And then by 10 years, you haven't had 10 times one year, you've had 10 lots of yearly experiences you'll become a much better coach for it. So those those off the top of my head would be the three things I'd say. Well, Dan, this was wonderful. We're going to have to have you back on at some point. There's, I have so many follow-up questions. Thank you so much for being with us. We'll make sure to include a plug of all the wonderful work you do. Uh, so I just want to thank you. And the work you're doing is absolutely incredible and fascinating. Thank you very much. Honored to be here. Thank you.